Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Disciples team is a group of about uh, 18 people, and we've been meeting for the last nine months or so. We launched into this idea of trying to figure out an intergenerational group from seniors down to people dealing with kids and all in between. We, we come and discuss things about how we can integrate generations and be more empathetic as a community and as a church. How can we grow together? in terms of not leaving the young people out, because if we do that, we're one generation away from the grave as a church. It, the idea of growing young is one idea, but the idea really behind it is growing. It's an initiative to um, make our church more of a home for not only the members, but the community. I quickly learned that these adults and these people who I thought were all problem professional were actually really similar to me. We had a lot of common interests. Uh, we had common viewpoints on some things about our church. These people, instead of just being people I have to be really proper around, they became sort of like families to me and people I could look up to. Just being in a group that's very diverse in gender, in age, in, uh, in ethnicity, um, and then tackling hard questions. There were so many times that different generations or someone in uh, uh, older than me or someone younger than me would be saying the same thing just with different words and using their perspective. So yeah, we're all the same, just someone 60 years older than me. I don't know. <laughs> the big thing that I really came across again was that young people really have a challenge that is somewhat greater than I think my generation had. At least it's different. How do you belong in this world? Is it through the sources that you have on the internet where people can sort of put on their best foot and it makes people who are younger feel like, man, I, I don't measure up, I'm somehow less than. And that's a big, a big impact on belonging and understanding who you are and whose you are and where you belong in this multiple X field of, of choices that young people run into. So I think it's the utmost level of importance to be able to, as a community, figure this out because people are hurting. And the church, we were called um, to help one another grow. I look forward to seeing the changes occur. I don't expect them to occur overnight, but I'm, I still believe that this is a very important thing for our church. I think it's important for that building of the younger group to understand that they are not just the future leaders, they are really leaders now at their level and give opportunities as much as we can to have that move forward. So we're not just a group meeting to discuss how to move forward. We, we are the group that is moving forward. I have a childhood memory that is surprisingly distinct 
or the age I was when the event occurred. I was four years old. We were living on the island of Puerto Rico in the Caribbean. I remember being at a friend's house and watching on a small black and white television as the casket containing the body of the slain president, John F. Kennedy, was unloaded from the plane. I remember it clearly, four years old. It's one of those kinds of events, one of those kinds of experiences about which they say, if you were alive and you were old enough to remember, you will be able to say exactly where you were when that occurred. I think that's true. That's the nature of common memories. Generations have common memories. Memories that we all experienced together, we all experienced at the same time, and that left an indelible imprint on our lives. So I want to ask you if you'd do me a favor this morning. I'd like to get a feel for what some of the common memories are here in our congregation from different generations. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do. In a moment, we're going to put up some images on the screen. There are going to be events that you recognize and that you know. Here's my request. When that event occurred, we're including a date, when that event occurred, if you were 20 years old or younger, and you remember it, would you stand? Fair enough? You're already getting nervous. I can feel it. No worries. When you see that event, if you say, I was 20 years old or younger, and I remember it, then I want to have you stand. So we'll begin rather deep back in the last century, early in the last century. We'll put the first event up on the screen. The stock market crashed, and the Great Depression set in. 20 years old or younger, and you remember that event, would you stand? Am I missing anyone? Is there one over here? Right over here. Thank you, sir. Bill, thank you very much. Appreciate that very much. We had one gentleman right down here in first service as well. An indelible event. Those who lived it remembered it clearly. In fact, it affected the rest of their lives. Okay, let's move a bit forward from that time to another grand event. This one certainly you will remember. We'll put the next one up on the screen. This is when World War II ended, and the celebration was intense. So if you were 20 years old or younger, and you remember the end of World War II, would you stand? Okay. Very good. Popping up all over. Beautiful. We have many of them. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Again, an imprinted memory that will not be forgotten affects a generation. Okay, let's, let's move forward away still. This time we'll come to the birth of a luminary, an important figure in American history. Born that year. Maybe we better give the name and the date. There we go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Right over here, somebody that remembers that. <laughs> And the date, well, you know, it can't be known for sure, but we think it's in the early 60s somewhere. 
So if you were 20 years old or younger in the early 60s, and you remember what was happening in the 60s, would you stand? There's got to be more of you in that category. All right. There we go. I would be standing. I am standing, too. So we've got quite a number here. Very good. Now let's move a decade or so forward again. This time, an event that continues in many ways to affect American politics and history. Those of you who were 20 years old or younger, and you remember that moment, the president sent into an early retirement boarding that helicopter leaving the White House. So if you belong to that group, would you stand? Let's see. Uh, we've got a lot standing here, sure. A lot of you up in the balcony as well. All right, very good. And now we go to a tragic event, but one that certainly is in our minds. Do you remember that day watching as space was being explored and there was all kinds of hope for the future and optimism, and then the space shuttle Challenger explodes? If you were 20 years old or younger and you remember it, would you stand? Let's see how many are there. Okay, wow. A lot of you in that category. Very good. And we move to yet another one. Another one that, again, was tragic, but which we certainly remember. In fact, about it, we said we would never forget. I have a distinct memory of exactly where I was when Russ Hoxie, sitting right over here, called me and said, you better turn on your television. And I turned it on, and this was it. So 20 years old or younger, you remember where you were. Would you stand? Let's see how many of you there are here. Wow. A lot of you there all over the wings and elsewhere. Thank you very much. And then finally, one more event. One more. The day when the Loma Linda University Church began a series entitled Generations. If you remember that day back in October of 2018, would you stand? 20 years old or younger? All right. We got a bunch of them up here. We had them all over the stage for the children's story. We're delighted you're here. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to see the different generations represented in our church congregation. Each group that stood has a unique bond together. That bond was certainly created by common memories, both good and bad, the kinds of memories we saw on the screen. It's created by other things, however, as well. It's created by styles, by music, by heroes, by sports figures, by trends and fads, by so many other realities. We grow up in a generation with whom we feel connected because there's so much that we have in common. But what strengthens us can also become our challenge. It can also become the difficulty of blending into one community called church. Because just as you stood and looked around at those who were seated, you may recognize there are some barriers, I feel, with people in other generations. Maybe that's why Oscar Wilde said, the old believe everything, the middle-aged suspect everything, and the young know everything. <laughs> there are those differences among generations. And so we're trying to sort that through. Today we begin a series of sermons entitled simply Generations, subtitled Better Together. 
We're actually partnering with Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller is engaged in a study, a large study. In fact, the largest study that I know of, of its kind. It is looking at why it is that churches continue to age. Please understand this. We're not talking about the university church. We're not talking about Adventism. We're talking about churches of every denominational stripe across this land. Fuller's trying to understand what's going on, what's happening. How can we reverse that trend? We are honored to partner with them. We have a coach from Fuller who's leading us through an initiative, a process that they call Growing Young. But we wanted to underline our growth as disciples, so we're calling it Growing Disciples Together. The team that is invested in leading us in that is the team you saw in the video. Our point person from the pastoral staff is Pastor Joey O, who's done an exceptional job with leading us in this direction. So throughout this series, we're going to take one generation at a time. We're going to look at that generation, ask if Scripture might say anything about them. What are the unique challenges? What are the unique blessings that they bring? And especially, what is their dream for the church? But we begin today not with a generation, but with an overall look at church, asking the question, what makes for an intergenerationally healthy church? I want to take you to a passage of Scripture this morning in Paul's New Testament letter to the church at ancient Philippi. The letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Let me say at the outset that the essence... The essence of what I want to say today, I've had the privilege of sharing with different groups of students on this campus at different times because I have come to believe it is the nature of a robust and healthy individual's life. But as I lingered over the passage, I thought this is not only talking about a healthy individual's life, this is a snapshot of a healthy intergenerational church. So for that reason, we go to Philippians chapter 2. Now, I want to ask you to notice something as we read today. You'll think, well, this is just kind of a travel log, one of those places in his writings where Paul says, say hi to so-and-so and greet the other person, and here's where I'm going next, and here's where I've been. It feels kind of like a travel log, which is actually what some scholars call it. But that's not what I want to draw your attention to this morning. What I'd like to ask you to notice as we read the passage, is notice the people Paul names and notice what he says about the texture and the quality of those relationships. Notice that. So with that in mind, Philippians 2, I begin reading at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. 
Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Three people in this passage. Three people in this passage that we as a congregation need if we are to be an intergenerationally healthy church. Three people in this passage who knew what it was to feel empathy for others regardless of their age or stage in life. Three people who knew what it was to stand in the, in, the, in the sandals, in the footprints of others, and experience what they felt. Three people needed for a healthy intergenerational life. The first one is the author, Paul. The one who either penned or dictated the words. Paul, the leader. Paul, the firebrand. Paul, the one who had certainly been in the faith longer and maybe had been around chronologically longer. Paul, the one who was leaving footsteps in which others could walk, in which others could trust to guide their lives. In fact, here in this very letter, just a chapter later, verse, chapter 3, verse 17, Paul will say to the Philippians, follow my example. In another place in his writings, imagine this. He says to his readers, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul is the one who guided them, who led them, who poured wisdom into their lives, who could share the meaning of walking with Jesus, how to live as a disciple of Jesus. We need Paul in our congregation. We need many Paul's. It's not to say that it is only isolated in one or two generations. But Scripture is clear in many other places that those who have lived life longer have a wisdom to share that simply cannot be gained until we ourselves have lived life longer as well. There is a tendency in our culture to diminish, to disrespect, and to disparage age to be interested only in what's new and what's young and what's vibrant and what's vital. But we need Paul. Those of you who have been at this for many years, we need your wisdom. We need your faithfulness. We need your example. If we are to be a healthy church, we need Paul. So let me ask you, who is your Paul? Or ask the question a different way, for whom are you being, Paul? Howard Hendricks was esteemed professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, decades in fact. Left his imprint on what must have been not just dozens or hundreds, but thousands of young lives of Protestant pastors who went out to serve the cause of Christ across this land and around the world. In fact, it was Howard Hendricks, through his pen, that first got me to thinking about these themes in the early church and specifically in the life of Paul. So I want to read you 
a piece that he wrote years ago. Listen to his own perspective and testimony. He wrote, I was born into a broken home in the city of Philadelphia. My parents were separated before I was born. I never saw them together except once when I was called to testify in a divorce court. I'm sure I could have lived and died and nobody would have particularly cared except that a small group of believers got together in my neighborhood to start an evangelical church. That small group of individuals developed a passion for their community. Walt belonged to that church. And he went to the Sunday school superintendent and said, I want to teach a Sunday school class. The superintendent said, wonderful, Walt, but we don't have any boys. Go out into the community. Anybody you can pick up, that's your class. I'll never forget the day I met him. Walt was six feet, four inches tall. He said to me as a little kid, hey, son, how would you like to go to Sunday school? Well, for me, anything that had the word school in it had to be bad news. I wasn't interested. Then he said, well, how would you like to play marbles? Well, that was different. Would you believe we got down and played marbles and he beat me in every single game? I lost my marbles early in life. <laughs> By the time Walt got through, I didn't care where he was going. That's where I wanted to go. For your information, he picked up 13 of us boys Nine from broken homes. Today, 11 are in full-time Christian work. And Walt never even went to school beyond the sixth grade. That's the power of a mentor. You don't need a Ph.D. to be used by God in the ministry of mentoring. Have you ever asked, who has most affected my life? Think about the people who made a difference. What did they do? How did they do it? Why did they do it? Answer those questions, and you will be hooked on mentoring for the rest of your life. Hendrick says his name was Walt. I don't know. Sounds like Paul to me. We need Paul in our congregation. We need many Pauls in our church who can be that mentor, who can be that leader, who can pour their wisdom and life into those coming behind. Is God using you as a Paul? Is God using a Paul in your life? Then thank that person for what God is doing. How do we become an intergenerationally healthy church? We do it by stepping into certain footprints Paul to begin with. But there's a second person in this passage. His name is Epaphroditus. We don't know much about Epaphroditus. After all, the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament is in Philippians. So we know very little about who he was and what he did and the, and the details of his story. But we do know something. After all, did you take note of what Paul says about him, how it is that Paul refers to him? When Paul in verse 25 talks about Epaphroditus, he refers to him as my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. Think of those terms. 
My brother, he's my brother. We're in this together. Our hearts beat as one. We're connected. That's Epaphroditus to me. He's my brother. He's my co-worker. We're both laboring in the vineyard of Christ. We're both working hard to promulgate the message of Jesus. We are both hard at it while the sun shines, while the day lasts. We are working together. And then he says, he's my fellow soldier. We've been to battle together. We know what it is to face danger. We know what it is to face risk. We know what it is to confront what Paul at other times will call the wild beast at Ephesus. We're fellow soldiers. We're in the battle together. And then Paul says this. Writing from the perspective of the Philippians, he says, He is your messenger. That's an interesting word in the original language in the Greek. Here's how you pronounce that word that the English renders as messenger. Apostolos. Apostolos. He is your apostle. Paul, who has repeatedly in his writing claimed the highest office in the church, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He begins letter after letter in that way. And yet here to the Philippians, he says, Epaphroditus at my side, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, is also an apostle. He's an apostle of yours. We're laboring together in the vineyard of Jesus. Now, it's not that Epaphroditus is Paul's only friend. Paul, if you read his writings, you soon realize had a rich texture of friendships in the early church. We don't know where they were generationally. Some of them could have been older than Paul. We know some were younger than Paul. But we find them again and again as we read. Aquila and Priscilla, Paul says, we work together. We live together. We've been in the, in the duty of God together. Onesiphorus, Paul says, Onesiphorus, you've refreshed my soul. You've encouraged me. Philemon, he writes to Philemon and says, I take joy in your love and in your grace. Or what about Dr. Luke, the dear friend? with whom he corresponded and worked? Or what about John Mark, that young friend who at the beginning was so polarizing and divisive that it split Paul from another one of his friends, Barnabas, but about whom late in his ministry Paul would write and would say, send John Mark to me. I need him. He's useful to me as Paul sits in a prison. And then Epaphroditus my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Paul's life in terms of his relationships was richly textured, deep, enduring, and meaningful. Sometimes, no doubt, same generation, but other times, clearly different generations. It calls to mind for me second church district in which I pastored, first district out of seminary, Austin, Texas. I was mid-twenties, 25 years old, young, single pastor, new city, big city, didn't know anybody. First person I met 
would become an enduring friend to me. In fact, when I think back to my time in Austin, he's right up at the top of the list. Somebody with whom we did life together during that period of time. Head elder of the South Austin Church, Bud Rutland. I was 25. Bud was 72. Dear to my heart. Co-worker. Brother. Fellow soldier. Who's your Epaphroditus? For whom do you serve as Epaphroditus here in this congregation. What's that like? The writer Charles Allen tells when he tells the story of Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn has the distinction of being the longest serving Speaker of the House of U.S. Representatives in U.S. history. Sam Rayburn, powerful man in Washington, third in line to be president, well known and often well spoken of. Sam Rayburn, one night, heard the news that a friend of his, somebody he knew, had gone through an unspeakable tragedy that very night, had lost his daughter, teenage daughter, suddenly. Gone. As the sun peeked over the horizon, the family's doorbell rang, and the father staggered to the door to open the door, only to find there on his porch the Speaker of the House of the U.S. Represent of US Representatives. Mr. Speaker, what, what are you doing? And he said to him, I heard. I had to come. How can I help? What do you say? It's a father at that point in time. I don't know. There's, there's, we're just, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, have you eaten breakfast? <laughs> we haven't even thought of food. Then I'll fix breakfast. And the Speaker of the House went in, into the kitchen, began to pull out pots and pans, preparing breakfast. Just a few minutes later, the father staggered back in and said, through a bleary mind, he said, I remembered you telling me earlier this week you were supposed to have breakfast with the president this morning. And Rayburn said, yeah, that's true. But I called and told him, I have a friend in need. We'll need to reschedule. Alan calls him Sam Rayburn. Paul would call him Epaphroditus. Who is your Epaphroditus? If we are to be a generationally healthy congregation, we need an Epaphroditus in every pew. Because as Leslie Holmes, great Presbyterian preacher, said and spoke truth, he said, there's a broken heart in every pew. So we need an Epaphroditus in every pew to encourage and to help, whether that's a 72-year-old or a 25-year-old. Three people in this passage. Paul, the leader, the mentor. Epaphroditus, the brother the colleague, the fellow soldier. And then thirdly, Timothy. Timothy is in this passage. Young Timothy. 
Timothy, who as you read about him in the New Testament, you get the impression that he, he wasn't particularly strong, physically strong. He didn't appear to have a lot of outward promise. But that Timothy, in whom Paul saw something. Timothy is in this passage. And did you take note of what Paul says about Timothy? As a father with his son. As a son with his father. That's the quality of relationship I have with him. He's like my own son. In fact, if you read Paul's writings in the New Testament, you will see he refers to Timothy numerous times, calls him my son, calls him my dear son, calls him my true son in the faith. That's Timothy. Did you notice what else he said about Timothy in these verses? He said, I have no one else like him. That's Epaphroditus. Timothy, he says, there is a union of soul. We are of the same soul. It's as though he's saying, we have two bodies, but one heart, one soul. That's Timothy. Timothy in my life. Incredibly, by the time the story ends in the book of Hebrews, Timothy has been arrested for his faith. He is facing the very same trials that Paul had faced earlier. This young and seemingly somewhat weak young man is now facing down the forces of darkness. Why? How? Because the Spirit of God had used an older person in the faith to pour into Timothy's life wisdom, strong thinking, courage, commitment, passion for the gospel. Who is your Timothy? Who is your Timothy? I want to suggest to you that it is true to say not only did Timothy need Paul for what Paul would pour into his life, I would suggest to you that Paul needed Timothy just as much. Some place into which he could pour what God was giving him because if we don't pour it out, it becomes stopped up within us and damages our own spiritual lives. So the question is, who is your Timothy? Your Timothy may be somebody sitting a pew or two away from you. Somebody who's a student in your class, whom you have seen maybe struggle or whom you've seen unique promise, and you have stepped over and you have put your arm around them and you have said, I want to walk with you and, and share what God has given to me. Maybe help guide you into some important decisions in your life. Maybe it's a kid in your neighborhood. Maybe it's somebody who's not chronologically young, but spiritually young, whom you are helping. Or maybe, <clears throat> maybe you will find, as Anita and I did years ago, that the most important Timothys in your life are in bedrooms just down the hall from yours. Maybe the most important ones of all. As I thought about and prayed about this this week, my mind went back to realizing that the two most important Pauls that poured into this Timothy were named Betty Roberts and Bobby Roberts, mom and dad. 
when I think of whatever I might have, of any relational ability and connection to people, I say thank you to Mom. She was my relational Paul. And I realize more as every year passes how much my father's life and his ministerial influence on me continues to echo all of these years later. He was my pastoral Paul. In fact, when my dad went to his rest in Jesus several years ago, shortly thereafter, my sister and my mother gave me this coat of his. Now, you have to understand, dad was about 6'3", weighed 200 pounds, had a waist that wasn't much bigger than mine, was a big man. When I put this coat on, it swallowed me. The sleeves hung down. They were too big. So Anita took me down to a place called the Garment District in L.A. I think they did a pretty good job. (laughs) I can't tell you. I can't tell you the pride with which I wear it. Saying thank you to a Paul in my life. In fact, my sister shared a picture with me. Captured the essence of what I think really is intergenerational church. You'll see it on the screen. That's my dad on the right. You can tell he was a big man. That's me on the left. And that's Austin in the middle. When I look at that, I have the tender feelings that any family member would have about family members of theirs. But I see something much more than that. I see, Ernie, what I saw here this morning with you, your son, your grandson. I see what the New Testament calls us to as church. Whether it's by biological bonds or by bonds in Jesus, we are family. We are called to journey together in any generation. The more intergenerationally healthy we are, the more we welcome any who come. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Epaphroditus would have us know. And that's what Timothy would say. But I don't want to give you the misimpression that such is easy. It is not. That's underlined by the words of the Christian writer Philip Yancey. Listen to what Yancey writes. As I read accounts of the New Testament church, he writes, no characteristic stands out more sharply than its diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." One modern Indian pastor told me most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Diversity complicates. Notice this line. Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. But 
Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? When I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I feel. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, an easy church, if we all look alike, or for purposes of this series, if we're all the same age. Oh, that's a senior citizen church. Oh, that's a young family church. Oh, that's a young adult church. It's much easier. We can develop community there. But in such a context, it is so easy for community to become click. And suddenly we, we lose the rich, robust vitality to which the gospel calls us. How can we be an intergenerationally healthy church? Well, with, with Paul, with Epaphroditus, with Timothy, scattered all through our pews, it will be challenging, but that is the reality to which Jesus calls us. So I want to ask you to do something for me. I want to ask you to do something for you. In these coming weeks of this series, Generations, I want to ask you to step out of your comfort zone. Step out into another space. In many ways you can do it. Right now I'm talking specifically generationally. If you're a Paul, you're coming later in your life and you have what you're able now to enjoy, then find Timothy's. We have almost 4,000 of them on this campus alone, not to speak of hundreds more down at Loma Linda Academy and in the other high schools and home schools scattered around this community. Invite them to your home. Come over Friday night. We're putting out soup and salads. You all can come and stay as long. Bring your friends. Come over for Sabbath lunch. Bring whoever you wish. Have you ever seen a student say, no, I'm not that hungry? <laughs> Invite them. If you're a younger person, do you know that throughout this community, there are scattered, different, extended care facilities where people in the declining years of their lives never have someone visit them? Walk into that room. Hold their hand. I was at home in Texas just a week and a half ago, holding my mother's hand, holding her by the arm and realizing my mother can reach all the way around her wrist and my fingers overlap. Frail, tender, yearning to be touched and loved. I'm urging you. Step out of your comfort zone. Step into someone else's shoes. Because you know what will happen? Here's what will happen. You will have the marvelous experience of something called empathy.
And when you have empathy, we are better together.